My name is Dave Bast. I'm uh, a member of this congregation, once a pastor, uh, and if you were here when that was true, then you're getting old. Uh, and John asked me uh, to jump in the series on the names of God this morning, which I said, sure, okay, and then he added, it's Leviticus 20 is your, uh, your opportunity. It's actually a very rich, uh, rich passage. So just to recap, especially if, if you're a visitor here this morning, all summer long, Fifth has been looking at these names of God from the Old Testament. And uh, the fundamental name of God uh, is Yahweh, the Lord. That's his covenant name. I, I love a distinction I came across uh, in the Old Testament scholar Alec Motier, who said, if you could ask the God of the Bible, what are you? He would reply, I am Elohim, I am God. That's the Hebrew word for God. If you could ask God, who are you? He would say, I am Yahweh, that's my name. If you ask me, what am I? I would say, I'm an elderly retired minister. If you ask me, who, am, who are you? I would say, I'm Dave Bast, I'm married to Betty Jo. I'm the father of Andrew and Peter and Jane and Anne. Yahweh is a relational name. And we don't actually know how it was pronounced. Yahweh is the best guess that scholars make today. Older scholarship uh, rendered it as Jehovah. And I could get into a little bit, or I'd, I could, uh, um, you know, I'm not an Old Testament scholar or a Hebrew scholar, so I'll leave that be. But the, the compound names that you've been looking at here um, are based on, off Jehovah, that older rendering of the, the four letters, as uh, they were called, the unpronounceable holy name of God. So you've got Jehovah uh, Jireh, the Lord will provide. You've got Jehovah Rohi. Uh, I was here when uh, we heard that wonderful sermon on the, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, and today, the name is Jehovah Mekodeshchem, uh, the Lord who sanctifies. So we're going to look at Leviticus, and if I can just place Leviticus in the story a little bit for you, uh, it comes in between Exodus and Numbers, if you're familiar with those first five books of the Bible. And Exodus through Deuteronomy uh, is really the story of the Exodus, the journey of Israel from bondage in Egypt to the promised land uh, where God has said he would settle them and uh, fulfill his promises to them. And Leviticus comes right in the middle of that and it's a pause in the journey. In Numbers, they start moving again after they've had a, a kind of a list of all the tribes and who's in there and how many there are. In Exodus, we end with the setting up of the tabernacle. So God says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make this special tent. And it's going to be the place where you can worship me. It's portable, so I'll go along with you on the journey. And at the very end of Exodus, the glory of God comes down and fills that tabernacle. 
in a dazzling display as if to say, okay, I'm here now. And immediately, we turn the pages to Leviticus and it's all about, this is what's gonna have to happen if I'm gonna live with you. Because of who I am, God says, here's what it's gonna take. We've had the the wedding, now comes the marriage. (laughs) So I've descended into your midst but this is what it's going to take for me to remain here. So you've got all kinds of stuff about sacrifice because it's going to take atonement. It's going to take blood to pay for sin. And if you're tempted to write off Leviticus as irrelevant, and it is admittedly, it's in the clean pages in most of our Bibles, the part that <laughs> we, we, they're not well-thumbed, you know. But the whole basis for the work of Christ on the cross is laid out in Leviticus. Blood must be shed. And as Hebrews will, will pick up and strongly emphasize, couldn't be the blood of an animal. That wasn't going to do it. That was only a signpost uh, toward the real sacrifice. Uh, and then just when you're tempted to dismiss some of these laws, and, and wow, some of them are harsh, admittedly. A child who sasses his parents is supposed to be put to death. I'm pretty sure if that had been literally carried out, Israel would have stopped after a generation. (laughs) There wouldn't have been any young people left, especially teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) And you can't wear garments made of two different kinds of material, so there goes cotton polyester shirts and, you know, wrinkle-free clothes. So some of them seem weird to us, some of them seem harsh, Some of them admittedly were for Israel at the time. They were ritualistic. Uh, They were intended to make Israel different, set apart. We'll talk a little bit about that more. But just when you're tempted to kind of bag the whole thing, you come across Leviticus 19, which among other commands says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Something Jesus thought was of enduring significance, right? So all of that then brings us to this name, I am the Lord who sanctifies, Jehovah Mekodeshkem. And to Leviticus chapter 20. So let's listen. I have to try to read it here because it's a different verse. You know what, I'm just going to read it here. It might differ slightly from the slide. I'm not used to doing this. I did this for you all because I know you're used to seeing stuff up here. And so if there are mistakes, it's not, it's not Ken's fault, it's my fault. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, incidentally, the title of Leviticus in Hebrew is Wayukra, uh, which means, and he called. The, the Hebrew names of the first five books of the Bible are, uh, all come from the opening words. And Leviticus, more than probably any other book in the Bible, is the direct discourse of God. These aren't just words about God. These are words from God through Moses to his people. And he called Moses and said, now you tell him this. So this is directly from God. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel 
or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and I will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. If a person turns to mediums and wizards, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. This is the word of the Lord. So, (laughs) there it is, folks. I mean, I didn't pick this. This was laid upon me. What do we make of this? Well, I think the key to the whole book of Leviticus and to much else in scripture is, comes in the first couple of verses of the previous chapter, Leviticus 19. Here they are. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So that's it. In fact, that's the sermon. I am holy, says God, you be holy. Um, That's it in a nutshell. But think first for a few moments about the holiness of God, what that is and what it means. We sang about it. Many of our songs and hymns proclaim it. The the whole service so far, I don't know if you picked up on it, has touched on this theme. I still remember years and years ago as a pastor, we were uh, leading a class of some, it might have been a high school class, and I was using R.C. Sproul's uh, video series uh, from his book, The Holiness of God, one of his early books kind of a classic really and I can still see and hear him on that screen saying kadosh 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 holy 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 the bible in hebrew in particular will duplicate a word for emphasis Uh, but there's only one passage where it's tripled not loving 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 not gracious, gracious, gracious. Those are great and wonderful truths of God. This is the only one that's tripled. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And holiness is not just what God is like, but it's who God is. It, is, it goes to the root of his very nature. In fact, almost 50 times 
in the Bible, God is called simply the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel. It's a name for it's the alternative name for him. He is the Holy One. One theologian defined God's holiness as the outshining of all that God is. I love that. It's like all of the character, all of the attributes of God are gathered into this one thing. And as it shines out of him, it dazzles us. I mean, you can't do anything but fall down in awe before this God. He is so utterly other, and yet he comes so amazingly close. That's the astonishing thing. We never take God for granted. We're never casual about, oh God, you know, God's with us, God. No, he's the Holy One. It's breathtaking that he should be so close, so intimate, as to be not just with us, but within us. Friends, this is an amazing truth. Uh, Theologian John Webster, in his little book on holiness, says that God's holiness, who he is, expresses itself fundamentally in two ways. So I'm going to talk about each of those ways. The first is by separating or setting apart creatures, could be things, could be people, to be his special own possession, to belong to him, to serve his glory. In fact, the root meaning of kadosh, that's the Hebrew, the Greek is hagios, the Latin is sanctus, they all mean holy, And from sanctus, we get sanctify, sanctified, saint, even. The root meaning of that word is to set apart, to choose, to separate. So initially, as you go through the Old Testament, the first thing that's holy is God's day. He rested the seventh day and hallowed it, made it holy, uh, for it belonged to him. So it's his his day could be holy, His um, name is holy. His word, Jesus told us to pray, hallowed be thy name. Recognize, before you pray for anything else, recognize God's holiness, acknowledge it, and uh, set him apart in that way. Hallowed be thy name. Um, His uh, servants could be holy, so there's a whole long ritual Uh, for the consecration of the priests, setting them apart to serve God in the holy things. His place was holy, the innermost room of the tabernacle and later the, the temple was the holy of holies, the holiest place. And God's people Israel were holy too. So we read at the end of Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God, I have separated you from the peoples. Uh, you shall therefore, I gotta, go, I gotta switch to this again. I might need glasses. See, these are clear on top and they're readers below. And I got them from an eye doctor I know. <laughs> I might need to go for another check because <laughs> I, I can't. Uh, 
You shall therefore make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean. You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord your God, am holy and I have separated you from the other peoples to be mine. There's Israel. And the reason I take from this, the reason for all that clean and unclean stuff, all that ritual stuff that they had to observe was to remind them that they were different. They were set apart. They belonged to God. They, they weren't like all the other nations. And the church, finally, is set apart. So a great passage from 1 Peter uh, 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are chosen and set apart by God. So that's the first way God's holiness expresses itself. And the second way, says Webster, that God's holiness uh, is put into action or put into practice is by his unceasing opposition to sin. So here's the bad news. God is against sin. And there's a reason why Leviticus 20 starts with this stuff about Moloch. Moloch. You didn't come to church expecting to hear about Moloch this morning. But Moloch was the worst of the fertility gods of Canaan. Moloch demanded child sacrifice. Uh, some have said that the shrines of Moloch would include a furnace and a fire would be kindled in there and parents would come and throw their infants into the fire as an offering to Moloch. And you ask, how could anyone do that? And the answer is, to get what they wanted. Because that is the essence of idolatry. It's quid pro quo. You give your God something to get what you want. And before we stand aghast, I just got to say this. Before we stand aghast at the worship of Moloch, in ancient Israel, we might reflect on the abortion statistics in our own country. It's complicated, I get that. I'm not trying to lay guilt on anyone. But if a child stands between you and what you want, one of those two things has to go. Either you gotta change what you want. So, the other thing about this Moloch here, it, there's a lot about sex in Leviticus, and I, I didn't read all of that, I didn't read all the chapter. But there is a direct cause and effect relationship between what you worship and how you live. And nowhere is that more clearly demonstrated than in the, the whole area of sex. And God says, Listen to this, I have set my face, I will set my face against that person. I will set my face against idolatry and immorality. You, 
this is harsh. I mean, this is not, this is, you know the Aaronic blessing? That wonderful, beautiful blessing, it's in the book of Numbers, uh, the next book. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord smile upon you and give you peace. This is the opposite of that, the direct opposite. I'm not smiling. I'm frowning. I'm setting my face. And I want to suggest to all of us this morning that this is good news, actually. This is good news about God. Because if he didn't care whether or not you did this, that, or the other thing, he wouldn't be the Lord. He'd be Moloch. If it was just a power kind of arrangement, give him something that you think he wants so you get something back in exchange. You know the story of David and Bathsheba? I don't have time to tell it, but David the king, he sees this woman, he takes her, tries to get her husband when she becomes pregnant to take the fall, you know. He won't do it. He's virtuous. So David has him killed. And you'd like to know what's going on in every character's mind in that whole story. I mean, did, they, did Bathsheba know? Was she trying to seduce him? Was David just take, was Uriah onto it? Was he suspicious? You'd like to know, you know. And the only character we're told what they're thinking comes at the very end of that story where the Bible says, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That's what God thought of it. I have set my face against him. And imagine a world where that wasn't true and where the Davids could do what they did and the Uriahs could get it in the neck. Imagine that. That's not who God is. I am holy. So, Leviticus says, you be holy. That's the obvious corollary. What you worship has a cause and effect relationship with how you live. And if you worship the Holy Lord, then that's going to impact your life. It has to. Our holiness flows from God as a direct response to our worship and love for him. Because holiness is fundamentally relational. The reason God wants us to be holy is because he wants to be with us. He wants, he wants to dwell with us. You've often heard it said, I've said so myself, God loves us as we are, right? Can I get an amen? amen? Amen. God loves us as we are. I'm glad. <laughs> that's, that's good news. That's gospel. But today especially, we rarely go on from there to what else the Bible says. Namely, that he doesn't love what we are. Nor will he leave us as we are. See, God won't leave us alone. <laughs> God intends to transform us. Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our... But finish then thy new creation. We sang about it. We've got a lot of good theology left in those hymns. We, don't, we just don't always pay attention to it. God 
is in the business of transforming us. That's what salvation also means. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a couple famous passages. I'm running a little short on time, so I'll, I'll spare you reading them. But in one, he compares going to, uh, God to visiting the dentist. You know, I never liked to go to the dentist, he said, because I knew if I had one tooth that I wanted him to fix, but he wouldn't stop there. He'd start fiddling with tooths that didn't hurt. <laughs> God is, our Lord is like the dentist, Lewis says. And then he, he goes on in another place to compare him to a house remodeler. Makes me think of your house, Jake, Jan, Jan and Carol. You know, you start, we just want to expand the kitchen a little bit. We just want to bump it out. And, and pretty soon the walls are torn up and there's new windows and the wiring's redone and, you know. And Lewis says, God is just like that. I will read you a little bit of that. <laughs> Presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So you be holy. (laughs) And that brings us to the command of our text for today, verses 7 and 8. This is what God tells us to do. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Isn't that interesting? Sanctify or consecrate yourselves. I'm the Lord who sanctifies. Keep those two things together. It's hard for us to hold true's intention, isn't it? God loves us as we are. He's not going to let us stay as we are. That's a, that's a truth. Those are truths to be held in tension. Sanctify, consecrate yourselves. I am the God who sanctifies you. So let me quickly say a couple things about sanctification, or three or four. We consecrate ourselves when we recognize that we are separate. We must separate and be separate. The New Testament also calls us to this. A lot of real conservative churches and Christians have gone wrong on separation They think it means to separate yourself from people, even other Christians, if they're not quite as sanctified as you are or have as many rules to keep. It doesn't mean separate yourself from the world in the sense of the world of people. We're to be salt and light in the world, Jesus said. It doesn't mean to separate yourself from other sinners. We're all in the same boat. We're not judgmental. We shouldn't be censorious. Who am I to judge you? I have to answer myself to the Lord, you know? I'm not interested in laying guilt on anybody for, for anything. We are separate in the sense that we're called to be different. We're called to be distinctive. 
You've heard mention here, if you've been a regular, of a little book by Larry Hurtado called The Destroyer of the Gods. I know Josh and I have talked about it. Josh has mentioned it. It's a fascinating book because it's, it's essentially, it's done by a, a bona fide scholar, and he's very scholarly in the way he writes, uh, and he's very careful, a lot of footnotes and all that. He's read all the literature. He knows the opposing views, but he says, essentially, the first Christians were different in such a way so different that it aroused the hostility and anger and eventually persecution of the culture in which they lived, the, the early, the Roman Empire. And especially they were different in two ways. One was the fact that they refused to worship the gods of their culture, the civic and, uh, and cultic deities of the cities in which they lived. And that angered most people. I'll tell you, the, the modern equivalent, very nearly so, is taking a knee during the national anthem. You ask, what is that an offense against? It's a, an offense against our civil religion, our civic pride in who, what, what? You're not patriotic? And that's exactly what people said about the first Christians. You're not patriotic. You won't go to the temple and participate in this? You won't offer incense to Caesar? What's the matter with you? You're weird. And the second way in which they were distinctive was in their sexual morality. The early Christians said no to the sexual mores of the Roman Empire. And they said no by doing away with a double standard that was prevalent then. <laughs> Wives were expected to be chaste because you wanted to make sure your children were actually yours. Husbands were pretty much free to do what they wanted, when they wanted, with whom they wanted, as long as it was not someone else's wife. And in fact, adultery was frowned upon in the Roman world, not because it offended or hurt the woman, but because it was against the property rights of the husband. You're using your, another man's property. And the New Testament said, no, uh-uh, no double standard. Husbands love your wives, period. In fact, the Roman world tolerated pretty much anything and everything, as long as it was a man doing it with a slave or some other unimportant person, any age, any gender. And the early Christians actually invented a new word that meant the sexual abuse of children, and they said it's forbidden. Pretty much the only element of New Testament morality, sexual morality, that our culture still holds to, for now. So we're called to be different. We're called to be separate. And then we're called to the work of sanctification. Sanctification, big word, Latinate, from the root to be holy. What does it mean? The catechism tells us what it means. The New Testament speaks of it in two ways, a, a dying and a coming to life, a killing and a making alive. And the catechism, the technical old theological words are mortification and vivification. But let's say what the catechism says about this. Uh, I'm going to do this responsively with you. There's three questions from the, the Heidelberg Catechism, 88, uh, 
through 90 more, three or four. So here they are. Let's say this responsibly. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? What is the dying away of the old self? It is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and What is the coming to life of the new self? It is to the Lord the joy of God, and the life to every kind of good, as God wants us to we, uh, and here is the New Testament, much of it, uh, I mean, there's so much on this. I could go on for a long, long time, but I, I just want to cut to the chase with a couple of passages. First from Colossians 3, where Paul says, since you've been raised with Christ, we, we've died and, raised and risen with Christ. That's New Testament truth. It's not just that he died and rose for us. We did that with him as we're united to him in faith, in a mystical sense, we actually died and rose. So Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. There's the connection. What you worship affects how you live. So we start by putting it to death. We need to be ruthless, even to put sin to death. And then we come alive. Romans 6 is the classic passage of this. You've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to new life. And Paul says in in conclusion, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus put it this way, take up your cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to carry our cross? It, It isn't this or that habit, it means to die to ourselves, to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That's sanctification. Now, two final thoughts. Sanctification is not self-improvement. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. God is at work in us as well as at working for us. Um, In fact, the whole Trinity is at work in sanctification. It is the Father who chooses us, who separates us. It is the Son who reconciles us, who's died for our forgiveness. And it's the Spirit who sanctifies. God at work in us. Uh, it's not self-improvement. So we, re- <laughs> we rely on that. God isn't finished with us yet. And the second thing, I'll leave you with this. Sanctification is hard, and we fail all the time. You know, why do you think we start our worship each week by confessing our sins? <laughs> If, if, if we were good at sanctification, if it was just, oh, snap your fingers, say no to that or the, the other. Or the, no, every week we come back. I look back on last week and I did the same stuff I've done the week before and the week before. Why is it so hard? Why can't I kill that sin once and for all? I don't know. 
God's at work. So what do you do when you failed? Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the sins of the flesh, you will live. You turn again to the Spirit. You repent. What else are you going to do? You turn again to the Lord. You remember where you are. I, I love what it says at the end of that passage from Romans 6. If we could see that, Romans 6, those few verses. Remember where you are. You're not under the law, but under grace, Paul says. Christ has died for us. Christ has conquered death and sin. He's already done it for us. He will do it in us. So remember that. Remember you're under grace. And then Paul adds this. Offer yourselves to God. Just do that. Offer yourselves again to God. Offer him Offer yourself to him this week. Offer yourself to him right now. Come and receive these tokens of his love and grace. Christ did die for us. Christ does offer us himself. And as you come, make it your act of offering, self-offering to God and say, I want to be holy. I want to be like you. I want to live for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.